My name's Chris. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here. I get to preach the very words of Jesus today to you guys, so this is going to be fun. If you've got your Bibles, can you open them up? John chapter 7, verses 1 through 39. That's going to be our passage today. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you can chill out. We're going to have the words on the screen for you so you can follow along. And um, so, hey, let me tell you guys, as you guys open up your Bibles, a little bit about how my morning starts uh, most mornings. Um, I've got a couple kids. I've got a five-year-old named Paxton, a two-year-old named Lucy. And uh, if I'm the first one out of bed, here, here's the reality of my morning. Uh, my five-year-old wakes up and there's something on his mind right away. He says, Dad, get me a glass of water, okay? He's thirsty. Additionally, I got a two-year-old little girl, Lucy. She's a little bit big-boned, so she wants a sippy cup with whole milk, okay? And so... Um, I got to get that dialed in. And then mama's real sleepy because we got an infant in the house. We just got a couple month old. And so she probably slept about an hour and a half. And so I know if I beat her out of bed, I got to get that coffee cooking or else there could literally be a fight, a physical showdown. Okay. Um, and so we get that coffee going to keep mama happy. And she wakes up thirsty. When my family wakes up every morning, it's an amazing thing that happens. Everybody wakes up thirsty. Okay. And, uh, it's, it's a fun season, but um, I, I say all of that because I think that we might have differences in the way that we start our day, but one of the things that we all share is this amazing biological reality called thirst. All of us in this room, we, we are made up of flesh and we have bodies that at some point in our day are going to tell us, hey, stop doing whatever you're doing and go find a cup of water. Go find a cup of coffee. I'm thirsty. I need some water. And um, and I believe that this is one of the most basic human instincts. It's a universal reality that if you don't drink, you will die. Now, some of you guys are like, see, I need to get a mimosa. See, he's pro-drink. No, that's just relax. I'm not saying that kind of drink, okay? I'm just saying we are drinkers. We are thirsters. We are people who have to find life in water. So um, this is a universal human reality. It's a biological function. If you don't drink, you die. And that's why I think in our text, chapter 7 of John, um, Jesus is going to look at this idea of thirst, and he's going to build this out. He's not going to say, not only are you just a person with a body who has to drink to live, you're a person. Look at me. You're a person. You have a soul. And you are thirsty for purpose and identity and life and joy and significance and value. And so Jesus is going to play on this idea of us being thirsty people because he wants us to point us to this reality that you've been hardwired with these thirsts. Why? Why do we thirst for love? Why do we thirst for significance? Why do we thirst for value? Why? Why do we thirst? Because it's our thirst that's supposed to drive us to the good well that is Jesus Christ. Now listen, this sermon this morning, it matters because here's what I know. All of us in this room are people who are thirsty. And if you've woken up and you've been insecure and you've wondered what makes you you and you've wondered what your purpose is and you've wondered, am I really lovely? Am I really lovable? Does somebody really have affection for me? Am I significant? Do I hold value? Those are okay, good and God-honoring desires and questions that I believe that were put there by God. And so just because you have a thirsty soul doesn't mean you're in trouble. That's not the problem. All of us in this room, we share this thing in common. We have desires for life and love and significance and value. But here's the deal. That's not the problem. The problem is where do we go searching for those things to be satisfied? What wells do we go to? What rivers do we drink of? What are the places that we try to answer those questions? And here's what I know. Here, here's what I know. All of us are thirsty at a soul level for a lo- love and affection, approval. And we are going to go somewhere 
to find something to drink. And Jesus Christ wants to say, listen, people of God, listen, do not settle for the broken cisterns of this world. Do not try to drink deeply of the things of this world and think that you're going to find satisfaction in life in those things. You're just not. There's nothing on this side of eternity that's going to satisfy those thirsty parts of your soul like the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to give this incredible invitation to us, you guys. He's going to say, come to me. All you who are thirsty, come and would you drink. It's going to be an amazing, amazing invitation. And I want us to see why Jesus puts us here. But um, before we get there, I just want to confess to you guys, this, as I was studying this chapter of Scripture this week, I was just blown away by the reality that this is not just a theological truth that Jesus is dropping on us. Church, this is like my story. Now, some of you guys are coming back. That last week was your first week. It was Easter, and you're coming back for the first time, and you're like, let me just, can I ask for permission to keep it super real right now? For the first 18 years of my life, I denied myself nothing that I thought would give me life. Addictions, pleasure, relationships, social status, performance in athletics, line up everything the world has to offer and let's start taking some shots. I had a thirsty soul. I had an insecure soul. I thought I could find significance, life, value, love, and a million things, and I drank deeply of the world. And I'm telling you guys right now, I was more thirstier than ever. I was dry on the inside. I looked like I had life, but I was experiencing death. And then Jesus Christ invited me to the good and better drink that is himself, and I have found life. Amen? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Thank you for being with me right now, not acting like I'm the only one. Okay? (laughs) And so this matters for us. We are thirsty people. And um, I I want us not to be a people who drink deeply of the world and think, why am I still dry? I want us to be a church that is filled with people who drink deeply of Jesus Christ and experience satisfaction in him. Now, um, this text is really broken up, not so much in principles and points, but it's really broken up in scenes. So Jesus is going to end John chapter 7 here in verse 37. Um, He's going to, 7 in verse 37, what he's going to do is he's going to be preaching in Jerusalem at the temple. But before he gets there, he starts his ministry right now in Galilee, a different part of the region. And so I want us to journey with Jesus as he moves from a conversation with his brothers. Then he's going to move into Jerusalem and have a conversation with some religious leaders. And then he's finally going to step into the temple and start preaching about how our thirst can be satisfied. Now, it looks like this story is in different scenes and different settings with different characters. But the one primary theme through it all is that Jesus is going to encounter some people that are incredibly thirsty for life, but they don't realize that Jesus is the one that gives it. And so I want us to see and learn from these people because I think this is a warning in Scripture of what can happen at a soul level when we don't see Jesus as who he is. So let's jump in. First scene is this. Scene number one, if you've got your notes, follow along. It says Jesus and his critics. Jesus and his critics. Let's read verses 1 and 2, chapter 7, John. Here we go. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. That's where he was at. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the, Jew, uh, now the Jewish juice feast of Booth was at hand. Okay, so John, the narrator here, is helping us understand where are we at in the story of Jesus? What's happening? What's the, what's the surrounding environment of Jesus? And where's he at in his ministry? Now remember, in John chapter 6, just previous to this, Jesus had the crowds. He had 5,000 people. Everybody wanted to be around this miracle worker named Jesus. And then what did Jesus do? 
Remember, he fed the 5,000, then he started preaching sermons and people liked his works, but they didn't like his words. And so they bailed in masses. Thousands of people bounced on Jesus, said, no, thank you, Jesus. We prefer miracle worker Jesus. We don't prefer preacher Jesus. Additionally, um, it says in this text that the environment around Jesus isn't that he's just lost some fans, but he's gained some real enemies. Like the religious leaders, when it says the Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders here. They want to kill Jesus. Why? John chapter 5. Go back. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son sent from heaven above. Additionally, he did a miracle on the Sabbath day, and that was against the rules according to them. And so they got upset at Jesus, and now they want to murder Jesus. Additionally, that's not a good place, by the way. That's just a really, if that's the posture, not good. Anyway, so um, additionally, John is dropping us in on some hints. He's letting us know the setting that's going to carry us through this entire chapter. It says it's the, it's, the, um, it's the feast of the booths. And so at first I was like, the feast of booths, what is that? And I wanted to read over it, but we can't read over it because John put it here for a reason. And it's significant, and it's going to help us understand our setting. So um, let, me, let me show you guys why this is significant and why we need to understand it. So the feast of booths took place in Jerusalem in October when the harvest had been gathered. So picture thousands of people all flooding the city of Jerusalem. And this is the time that they had labored all summer long. They had labored for their crops. The crops and the harvest was in. And now they're gonna hang out in the big city and celebrate and worship God for seven days. But this was more than just like a harvest festival. Okay, there was some theological weight to this. The reason it was called the Feast of Booths is because the people of God would literally live in the city in these temporary tent-like structures. They would make these like booths for themselves, these pop-up tents. And they were kind of constructed of kind of mobile uh, materials that were easy to carry around. Why did they do that? Well, you got to go all the way back to the Old Testament to understand that God had delivered his people from slavery. And for 40 years, God's people wandered around the desert. And what did they live in? These tent-like structures. And so this whole festival, this whole celebration, people would live in these tent-like structures for seven days. And it was their way of remembering God provided for our ancestors. They used to be just some wanderers in a desert land. Now, now God has given them land and fields and crops and harvest God had provided for them. Now, One of the other elements that was so significant to this celebration was this idea of water. One of the things that they would do every day for seven days is they would go to the temple. They would find the high priest, and the priest would take a big cup of water, the altar would be below, and they would be singing psalms and hymns, and then he would pour out the water onto this this, um, uh, the altar, and that was signifying in remembrance of how God had provided water for his people in the desert. Now, you guys remember, right? God's people are wandering around the desert in the book of Exodus. They're thirsty. They're like, God, why'd you bring us out here? Why didn't you leave us in slavery? We're going to starve to death. There's nothing to drink out here. It's dry. And what did God do? He provided a rock. And out of that rock that he struck, it overflowed into water. God provided for the thirsty people in a season of of drought and in a a dry land. Now, where are we going to go here, right? Jesus is going to connect the dots at the very end of this thing. But before he does, he starts to interact with some people who are spiritually thirsty. They're looking for a drink, and yet they're missing that Jesus is that better drink. So let me show you guys the first one here. The first person he interacts with is um, his brothers. And his brothers, 
His brothers are real interesting. We know that uh, some of his brothers go on to be incredible church leaders, but at this point, they're critics of Jesus, not followers of Jesus. So um, they understand that this temple celebration is happening in Jerusalem and that Jesus' fame is kind of on, the, on a downtrend, and they're going to kind of give Jesus some criticism on how he can jumpstart his ministry once again. So let's look at verses uh, 3 through 5. Here's what it says. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. (laughs) Okay, so this is Jesus' little brothers telling big brother Jesus what to do. They're not asking Jesus, how do I live my life? What should I be doing? How can I serve you? They're trying to say, big brother Jesus, hey, Remember you just preached? Not such a good sermon, buddy. Everybody left. I don't know if you've noticed, it's just me and you and nobody else really. So the 5,000, the big crowd, you were trending on Twitter, you were popular, you had influence, everybody wanted to make you king of the land. Now you're hiding out in Galilee kind of alone. Not so good. You know what you can do? Jesus, here's your opportunity, buddy. Here's what we're going to do. You want to be a public figure, you got to make a public appearance. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem, do some of those whole like, I'm going to feed 5,000 people kind of trick, do the miracle, get the crowd, become popular. You're going to become the talk of the town. You'll steal the show. Everyone will marvel at your power. And then we'll kind of be like awesome again, Jesus. We'll get the crowds back, Jesus. We'll get famous, Jesus. Hey, listen, if success is the size of the crowd, this is what it's going to take, Jesus, you know? So now they're telling Jesus what to do. And notice their, their motives. It's kind of funny because Jesus, John had said in, in verse 1, people are trying to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. Is it super loving for you to tell your brother, you know what, you need to go into the city that people are trying to kill you? That's not a huge win, okay? And so um, what's happening here is these guys are not more concerned with Jesus um, preaching the gospel to people. They're worried about Jesus becoming a somebody. Now, why is that so important to his brothers? Because they want to be in proximity to a somebody. They want to feel valuable and significant. Now listen, I think that this should serve as a warning to us because I want to, I want to say this. When I, when I was reading this in verse 5, it says that I think the most shocking line, the narrative that John gives us, it says that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They didn't even believe. Now why is that such a shocking statement in John chapter 7 verse 5? Here's the problem with the whole thing is that if anyone was familiar with Jesus, it was his brothers. We kind of buy into this lie that I would believe in Jesus if I heard him preach. I would believe in Jesus if I saw the miracles. I would believe in Jesus if these guys had seen the miracles. They'd heard the sermons. They saw Jesus's power up close and personal, and yet they didn't recognize his divinity. Now, why is that a warning to me and you? Because we, got, we can't just assume that just because you're familiar with church, you're familiar with Jesus, you're familiar with the story, you're familiar with the songs, you grew up in the right family, that you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Church, just because you're familiar with Jesus doesn't mean you have a saving faith in Jesus. We've got to be asking, are we like these brothers? We've settled for some familiarity, but we haven't recognized our need to have faith in a Savior. Additionally, Like I said, these big brothers want Jesus to become a somebody because they want a sense of significance, and here's what they're doing. They're saying, Jesus, why don't you get the big crowd? Because if if you're the guy with the big crowd and I'm in proximity to you, if you're a somebody, then I kind of get to know the popular kid, then I'll finally be seen as significant and valuable. Do you see what Jesus becomes? He becomes a means 
for them to get a little glimpse of fame, a little bit of attention, a little bit more sense of significance because they're close to big dog Jesus. And here's, here's the problem with all of this. I can see this same posture and tendency in me and in my own heart. So I don't want to let us off the hook because so often we want to look at these guys and say, ah, that's not me. I love Jesus. But listen, church, aren't we all thirsty just like Jesus' brothers for significant worth and value? They thought it would become through popularity and association with a somebody. And, and guys, I just want to just say, I, have we not played this game? Y'all don't remember high school? Like you want to be a somebody where you got to sit at the cool kids table at lunch. You guys all know there's that table. You want to be cool. You got to make, you got to make relationships. You want to be the somebody. You got to get invited to the party. And guys, honestly, some of us never graduate from playing this game. You want to feel significant? You want to feel valuable? Got to hang out with the CEO. Got to hang out with the pretty kids. Got to hang out with the popular people. Got to hang out with the people with the lake house. Got to take a photo with somebody who looks awesome because then I got proximity to people that got nice hair. Struggle is real. Do we not do, we not do this though? Listen, this is the sad, sad, sad reality. So many of us are believing that being around pretty people and popular people and powerful people will satisfy the thirst within for significance, and it just won't. And one of the things I just want to jump into this text and say to these guys is they are in proximity to Jesus, the Savior, the one who is going to be praised for all of eternity, the one who spoke the entire universe into existence. And I'm telling you guys right now, Jesus is the one that would satisfy their need for significance, but they aren't willing to see that the drink is right in front of them. If you want to graduate from playing this game where you're searching for significance in the eyes of other people and association with a somebody, you've got to understand who Jesus Christ is. Listen, you get your significance from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are so loved that he spared no expense to buy you back out of slavery into the right relationship with him. You are so loved, so significant that the father sent his son to ransom you unto himself. You want significance? You're a child of God. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're an heir to the king. You want significance? Look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not association with awesome people. Amen? The gospel sets us free. So I I want us to be a church that learns from the brothers. We are thirsty people, and I'm telling you guys, we are not going to satisfy our thirst by running to other people. Those are empty wells, dead rivers. So let's move back in. I want to look at the second scene, because Jesus not just has this encounter with his brothers, but now he's going to hang out with some religious leaders, and they're going to be skeptical of both Jesus' authority and his origin. So let me guys show you the second scene is Jesus and his skeptics. Write that down. Now, there's a little confusion if you read this text, because Jesus looks at his brothers and said, hey, I'm not going up into Jerusalem. Um, and then later on, he goes to Jerusalem. So you're kind of left wondering, why? What's going on here? What Jesus was saying no to in his brothers, with his brothers, is he says, I'm not going to Jerusalem in the way that you would want me to go to Jerusalem. I'm not going to work miracles. I'm not going to gain a crowd. I'm not going to add some new members to the Jesus fan club. I'm going to teach people how they can be satisfied in the person work of Jesus Christ. So he's going to come as a teacher, not as a miracle worker. And so we see this show up. And when he gets there, we notice in verse 11 that he's met with some uh, skepticism and resistance. So let me show you. It says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now they're saying, where is he? Not because they want to know where's Jesus and how can I get a conversation with him and how can I hang out with him? How can I be a part of what God's doing in and through him? No, no, no. They're, they're saying, where is he? 
We gotta shut him down. We've gotta arrest him. We've gotta murder him. We've gotta trap him. We've gotta make him look silly with our arguments and our questions. They're coming to set Jesus up. And then Jesus not only comes into the city, but he begins to teach and preach. And so look at um, kind of the response in verse 15 and 16 to Jesus' teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay, so here's, at first you're like, okay, they marveled at Jesus' teaching because he's an incredible teacher and preacher and he had authority from above. And yes, that's part of it. But guys, there's, there's more. This is like a backhanded compliment here. They're basically saying, um, Jesus, where'd you go to school? Like at this time, if you wanted to be a teacher, if you wanted to be a Bible teacher, you had to study underneath a rabbi. And as that rabbi, rabbi saw your um, progression and your knowledge, he would give you authority and he would give you a graduation. He would give you the kind of whole uh, certificate thing. And then you could finally go out and start teaching. And they're saying, Jesus, you act like you're some high and mighty teacher, bro. But like you watch some YouTube videos because you're from some small town, some backwoods community. Like you went to Wayne State, you know. Where's the diploma? Where's the big known seminary degree? What authority you preach on? And Jesus is going to say, okay, that's fine. You want to question my spiritual authority. Because I didn't study underneath the right rabbi, but I'm telling you, I came from the Father above. I'm the sent one. I'm the Messiah. I don't stand on somebody else's authority. I stand on God's authority because I'm God in the flesh. Additionally, later on, they're going to struggle to recognize not just Jesus' spiritual authority, but they're going to struggle with his origin. They're going to question Jesus. How could you be the Savior of the world? We know you were born in Nazareth. We know where you're from. We know you got Mary and Joseph or mom and dad. You got brothers and sisters. How do you expect us to believe that you're the very son of God when we understand your family dynamics? He's saying, no, no, no. You act like you know where I'm from, but you don't understand. I'm, I'm heaven's sent son coming to ransom sinners back unto myself. So Jesus isn't backing away. But here's the problem with this. As I looked at these religious leaders, I think it's easy to want to kind of throw stones at them. I mean, these guys... They were the dudes that were awesome in Bible study. <clears throat> they were the Awana like superstars. Some of y'all grew up with Awanas. <clears throat> First Timothy, Second Timothy Award. I don't know. I never did it. It's cool though that you did. They were the guys that like, you know, the people that when you pray next to them, they just like drop like six verses and sound incredible. That's these guys. And if anyone should recognize Jesus, it's these guys. But guess why they can't recognize Jesus? Jesus didn't come like they thought Jesus would come. Jesus isn't hanging out with the kind of people they thought the Messiah would hang out with. He didn't go to the kind of schools that they thought the Messiah would go to. He's not doing the kind of works they thought the Messiah would come and do when he showed up from heaven to earth. So they can't recognize him. They're blinded to him. And here's my fear. I think that... um, These guys have basically a spiritual pride because they're missing Jesus. They're missing what God's doing in front of them because they value and prioritize their religious systems, their religious values, and their religious preferences. And church, we can do the exact same thing. This week, I was just confronted by this reality that I have a certain theology that I get from Scripture that then drives how I want to do ministry. And so I believe we should teach the word. I think we should worship Jesus Christ. I think we should do more than just hang out in this big crowd, but that we should move towards community and discipleship. And so all of this stuff is good. And that's just my personal preferences. And that's my ministry philosophy. But here's what can happen. I can naturally start to get really skeptical of people who do it a different way. Just like the religious leaders were skeptical of Jesus because he did it in a way that they didn't understand. I can share that same skepticism. And here's some values in my heart. I start to think, oh, 
They're a little charismatic with their spiritual gifts over at that church, huh? Oh, they're focused on topical preaching. Hmm, probably watered down. Oh, they play secular music and have a pastor who's trying to look hip in his extra tight affliction t-shirt. You thought it too, relax. They got fog machines and multicolored laser shows. Hmm, can we just rely on the Holy Spirit? Why do they need all of that stuff? Jesus ain't about all that. Could he actually be in work in those churches and in those ministries and those different environments? See, what happens is I start to elevate my ministry philosophy and my preferences on how worship and how preaching and how community and how discipleship had happened. And then I, all of a sudden, what do I do? I start to get skeptical of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Surely God can't work there. They've watered down the message. They're probably a big crowd, but are they really making disciples? Is their ministry built on hype? Or is it built on the significance of the word of God? All of a sudden, there's this skepticism. There's this doubting. There's this questioning because they're not doing it the way that I think it should be done. Guys, that's sin. Spiritual pride. Church, if that's us and we're trying to show the world how to do ministry like City Light, we got to repent. May we not miss what Jesus Christ is doing in different places, different churches, and different expressions because they do it different doesn't mean that Jesus Christ isn't using it and that he's not a part of it. Amen? I don't want to be like these religious leaders, that they are blind to the very work of God right in front of them because they're saying it doesn't look like the way I think it should look. All right, last setting is this. Jesus' scandalous invitation. Jesus' scandalous invitation. This is kind of the last scene uh, in this, this kind of dialogue and setting. So Jesus is going to jump into Jerusalem. He's going to start to preach. Let me, um, let me read the scandalous invitation in verse 37. It says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now remember the setting. God's people are in the temple. The priests would have been pouring out the cup of water. This was the seventh and final day. And all of the onlookers would have been celebrating how God had been faithful in the past to satisfy the thirst of their forefathers by providing water in a dry and distant land. Surely God's people would have died in that desert had God not provided for them. And now they are celebrating with the pouring out of this water that God had been a good God, that God had been faithful, that God had provided. And he literally provided a physical salvation for them in the desert. And here it is that Jesus stands up and he says, guys, we're celebrating, but all of this is about me. We're celebrating that God had been faithful in the past. But I'm telling you right now, there's a work of God that he has come. I Just like your souls are thirsty, I am the good drink that will satisfy you from the inside out. And I want to tell you guys why I titled this scene, The Scandalous Invitation. The first, one of the first words here is he says, if anyone thirsts. We buy into this lie that Jesus' grace is only for some people that maybe have a cleaner life, a better background, a nicer past, the right theology, a couple boxes that they checked. But look at this invitation from Jesus Christ. This is one of the scandalous things that he does. He says, if anyone You've been a skeptic in the past? Come to me. You've blown it? You're enslaved to sexual sin? Come to me. You've been playing religious games your whole life, trying to compare yourself to other people, trying to compete, trying to show the world that you're somebody, that you did it the right way? Come to me. You've got a messy past, a messy story, some family dynamics that aren't right? Come to me. You've got some sin struggles, some guilt, some shame that you're carrying around? Would you come to me? And notice what precedes all of our coming to Jesus, please. It's not our spiritual strength. He says, come to me if you're thirsty. How many of you guys understand it's our thirst that drives us to the very foot of the cross? You know who comes to Jesus all throughout his ministry? 
Not strong, self-sufficient religious leaders. It's thirsty, broken sinners. Those are the ones who get it. Everybody else who's trying to act like they're not thirsty, they never come to Jesus. But people who realize they come to the end of themselves, they acknowledge their thirst, their depravity, their brokenness. Those are the very people who come to Jesus. And I just want to tell you right now, if you've come to Jesus because you've been thirsty for longing, life, significance, value, forgiveness, would you praise God for that? One of the miraculous break-in stories wasn't just when I met Jesus, but what preceded my coming to Jesus, but he made me discontent with sin. He made me thirsty. And I drank deeply of the world, and I realized that nothing on this side of eternity satisfies, and so it pointed me to the person and work of Jesus Christ. If that's your story, would you celebrate that? God made you thirsty. God made you hunger and thirst for the very spirit of God and the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. And again, this is not just like me talking about a theology that Jesus brought some 2,000 years ago. Guys, this is my story. 18 years old, freshman at the Harvard of the Midwest, hashtag Wayne State, you know what it is. I'm so praying that they'll build Haruska Hall someday. Anyways, um, let's keep it real though. You guys have been 18. You guys know what it feels like to be insecure. And I want to ask you, some of you guys know what I I went through because I drank deeply of the world and I'm just going to keep it super real. I used people. I took from people. I entered into relationships with impure motives. And I was carrying around all kinds of guilt and shame. What do I do with this? Supposed to just become some kind of a good person and hope that this chapter of my life just goes away? There's no life in that. So here I am walking around, freshman, look fully alive, look like I got a little sense of swagger, but inside is just a kid who's carrying around a whole bunch of guilt and shame. And somebody told me about this person named Jesus that took my shame, that died on the cross for my sin, and that offered forgivenesses like me and some of you forgiveness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed so that mine wouldn't have to. Do you guys want to know what that did to my soul? That was good news. It's still good news. Amen? Man, it's still good news. And so I just, I want to ask you, I don't know, and here's one of the things I've learned about walking with Jesus. Just because you're a Christian now doesn't mean that you don't have a soul that's thirsty. You know, in Psalms, one of the writers says, it's a deer pants for water, so our soul longs for the Lord. Isn't it true, Christians? You drink of Jesus Christ. It it does satisfy, but it just makes me thirstier for more of Jesus. I just want more of his joy and more of his peace and more of his hope and more of his life in me. So every day, I don't graduate from this posture of needing Jesus and to drink deeply from him. I I become thirstier for more of Christ. It's a beautiful reality. So I just want to say, Christians, I don't know where you're at if you're in this room and you've got some thirst right now, anxieties, hurts, unforgiveness, bitterness. You're going through some things. You're lonely. I don't know what that is, but I want to invite you. Would you wrestle with that thirst and would you chase it to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Now, um, here's what I know. All of you guys are going to be thirsty, even you as Christians and and you as non-Christians. And I just want to say, can we just stop and pause? Because one of the, the, the Old Testament writers says, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You, you, you've built for yourself empty cisterns, and you're trying to drink from a different well. And what he's trying to say is, guys, it's not that you're thirsty that's the problem. It's where are you going to find satisfaction for you, that thirst. And, and I just want to say, let's just name it. 
How many of us, the very first thing that we do is we pick up our phones when we wake up in the morning. Why? Somebody text me? Did somebody write on my wall? Did somebody like something I posted on social media? Please approve of me. I'm so thirsty for your love and affection and your attention. What do we do with our kids? Parents, this is, this is where it gets weird. Can I just call it out? Oh, I'll snap. Y'all aren't coming back next week. Okay. You know what's sad? Is because you're thirsty, you know what we'll do to our kids, parents? Is we'll try to make our kids the trophy that gives us significance, worth, and value. We're afraid to discipline our kids because all of a sudden we need them to think that dad's awesome. We think that's the love. But really we're using them to get love. You're thirsty. You're going to go to your spouse. You're going to put demands on them that they validate you and they affirm you in such a way that they just can't carry that burden. You're thirsty. You're looking for it, what, because you want to get a promotion? That's going to satisfy? You need a bigger house now? That's going to be the thing? If I just get a little bit more? And we are thirsty people. And I'm telling you guys right now, I don't want us to spend our lives knowing who Jesus Christ is and yet drinking the same stuff of the world and wondering why are our souls still so dry? Jesus has invited you. Would you drink deeply of the gospel? Now, you guys are saying, okay, Chris, that sounds great. Hey, but let's keep it real. Isn't that what the pastor's supposed to say? Come on, man. Jesus is better. We know you got a drink of Jesus. Don't play the world's games. We've heard it before. Okay, I got you. Stay with me. Here's some of the things I wrote down this week of how Jesus Christ is actually the better drink. Here it is. It's Jesus that will look at you on your worst day and say to you, my grace is sufficient even for you. It's Jesus that will look at you when you're lonely and remind you, Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you and forsake you. When your soul is thirsty for belonging, it's Jesus that will remind you that it was me that was rejected by my own creation so that you could be accepted by the Father and be invited into this thing called the church, a new spiritual family. Do you belong? Yes. Have you been invited? Yes. Do you have a seat at the table? Yes. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus Christ has given it to you. When you're thirsty for love, and by the way, we're all thirsty for love, it's Jesus that will look at you and remind you that he loves you so much that he gave his very life for you. You want love? You know what we'll do is we'll settle for lust. We'll give ourselves away to something that will act like they'll love us, but really we're just giving ourselves to takers. Jesus Christ was demonstrated his love for us in the fact that he gave. He didn't come to take. See the light, isn't it true? This is why we come to the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no other well that will satisfy like Jesus. All right, I want to close with this final thing right here. Verse 38, 39. I want to show you guys that, guys, this doesn't just start with you becoming a satisfied person in Christ, really what happens is the Spirit of God starts to change you from the inside out. So let me read this um, final verse with you guys, uh, 38 and 39. Here it is. Whomever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Christ had, was not yet glorified. So here's what it is. Gavin talked about it earlier in his call to worship. Uh, Jesus had promised that although I'm going to die and I'm going to raise from the grave and I'm going to ascend to heaven, I'll send my helper, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is now, his power is now going to come and live in you. And here's, here's the incredible good news. Not only do you get satisfaction in Christ, not only do you find identity, new affections and new worth and new love in person and work of Jesus Christ, But his Holy Spirit now doesn't just make you a bucket that gets filled up. He makes you a river that flows out to everybody else. Because guess what? This world is thirsty. And Jesus makes you the conduit 
that gets to flow grace and love through you. So yes, it comes to you, but it doesn't stay just in you. It starts to flow through you, amen? And this is an amazing thing that we see happen. So one of the examples in scripture is Jesus's brothers who they start as critics of Jesus. They're cynical of Jesus. They're critical of Jesus. And yet after Jesus raises from the grave, he shows up and talks to his brother, James. James becomes a follower of Jesus. His thirsty soul is finally satisfied in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And then we know that James goes on to give his life for the good and glory of Jesus and for the good of the church. And he writes a book of the Bible and God uses him in amazing ways. Now, why is that so important? Because when you come to know Christ, that doesn't mean that you just get to hang out until eternity starts on the other side. It means that Jesus Christ will fill you with a new power so you can love like Jesus and look like Jesus. It, it means that Jesus will give you a purpose bigger than yourself. It's an incredible gift. It's good news. And this is the story that God has written in people's lives for thousands of years. And that's still the story that God is writing in our lives. So let me close with this. I just want to ask you guys, for you guys who are Christians, um, we're going we're gonna to do communion in just a moment. Um, but if you guys are here and you're thirsty, would you go to Jesus today? You need so much more than a neat sermon and some nice songs. You need to drink deeply of the water. And I don't know what that is in your life. I honestly, but there's stuff. Can we just acknowledge there's stuff? And so would you sit in your seat? Would you be still as the music plays? Would you actually do business with God? And would you pray to him? Would you confess your sin, your anxiety, your fears, all that stuff that's going on on the inside? Would you drink of Jesus Christ this morning? Additionally, if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're thirsty. I just want to invite you. Would you come? Jesus' amazing invitation is he says, would you just come? Come to me if you're thirsty and would you drink? And um, I believe that one of the great gifts that you might have if you're not yet a Christian and you're in this place and you're saying, I'm thirsty, is that God has made you thirsty. So would you satisfy that thirst in the personal work of Jesus Christ today and receive him as Savior and Lord? In just a moment, I'm gonna pray. You can pray with me uh, and receive Jesus Christ, the better and good drink. Today, we're gonna take communion in just a moment and respond. And um, as we do, I, I just want us to remember that our, our satisfaction in Christ is only possible because Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God for us and, and he died in our place for our sin. And so as we take the bread, we're gonna remember that Jesus's body was broken for us. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God was crucified and died because of our sin, not his. Additionally, we're gonna take uh, the juice and we're gonna remember that Jesus's blood was shed. And, um, and that blood was significant because it paid the price for our sin. And, um, and so as we come forward, we remember what Christ has done to make us children, to give us an invitation to be satisfied in him, to adopt us into this family, to give us his spirit, and to be able to give us both a power and a purpose and a hope for eternity. That's what Christ has done. Now, as you come forward, not only remember those things, but if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're here. This is just a family meal. And uh, the scriptures tell us, like, listen, th- this, this isn't significant that this is for you because this is just bread and some juice that we got from Costco. So you're not missing out on anything. But for Christians, it is significant because it's the way that we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, so would you remain sitting? And uh, maybe if you're not yet a Christian, you want the very first act of worship to be today to come forward and receive communion. That would be awesome. We'd celebrate that. So last thing I want to let you guys know, just come forward. There's communion stations in the back and in the front. So just find the one nearest to you. If you've got uh, allergies, we've got a gluten-free station in the back for you. Uh, And additionally, if if you've got somebody you just want to pray with this morning, you got some stuff in your life and you've got some thirst in your life and you've got some brokenness in your life, we've got people in the back that want to pray with you and uh, they want to do business with God with you. And so would you go back there if, uh, if that's where you're at this morning? Let me pray. So King Jesus, I come to you. I just want to say thank you for your invitation. 
it's scandalous that you would say anyone, come to you, anyone, anyone. And um, God, I was 18 years old. I took you up on your invitation to come. And God, that, that's changed my life. You've changed my life. God, I'm not alone. This room is filled with people that would say, I came thirsty and I've left satisfied. There's a new spirit in me, a new affection in me, a new love in me, a new security in me. And it's because the person who work of Jesus Christ lives in me now. So God, thank you. As the people of God, we come and we declare we're not worthy of it, but we're thankful for it. And uh, I want to pray right now for those who are in this room and maybe not yet Christians. They've started to get familiar with the story, but they've never received you. Oh God, if that's you, would you, would you guys pray with me right now? Jesus, I come to, your, come to you thirsty. Acknowledge my brokenness and my need. I have sinned and rebelled and drunk deeply of the things of the world. And now I come to the one that will satisfy, the one that has created me, the one that loves me and the one that's gracious and sufficient for me. Jesus, I receive you as not just my savior, but the Lord and leader of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, church.